Good morning, guys. <laughs> wow, as, uh, as Anna and Jess shared, we've had a really precious weekend so far. We could probably fill the next half an hour sharing some of the stories, but we've got time for that tonight. This morning, we're thinking about how God fills our hearts. And to do that, I want to look at a psalm that has gripped me for a year and a half. It's Psalm 24, a psalm of David. And this psalm has special personal significance for me. And just after I went on a Reviver Hearts retreat, like we've been doing this weekend, just over a year ago, um, I went on this weekend, had a powerful marking encounter with God, which changed the direction of the last year and a half of my life. And when I got back, I had a, a dream when I got back to Durham. And in this dream, I was at the base of a, a mountain. We were in Switzerland for the retreat, so Lake Geneva. And I felt this invitation from God to, to come up the mountain, to come up the mountain. Ever since then, Psalm 24 has, has gripped me. And I believe this psalm is a pathway for revival. It's a journey that examines our hearts before the Lord and our longing for him. So let's read it together. I'm going to read from the ESV. It should appear on the screen. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. We're going to break down this psalm into two parts based on the position of the Hebrew word selah, which you probably saw on the screen. Many scholars believe it was a musical term that meant to pause or to contemplate. And from the first half of the psalm, I want to draw out three things this morning. Firstly, what it means to hunger for revival. Secondly, the condition for revival. And thirdly, the answer for revival. What it means to hunger, the condition, and the answer. So firstly, to hunger for revival. Verses 1 to 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Recently, I found myself wondering, why does the psalm start this way? Why can't we go straight into the invitation to ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may ascend? Pick me, God. But instead, David begins by fixing our eyes on the Lord the one who rules and reigns before any human effort. And I believe it centers us on the very heart of revival, which is a longing for more of God himself. This year, I've had the privilege of visiting two extraordinary caves. I was planning to show a photo, but the prayer meeting kept going on and on, so I don't have the photo. If you want it, you can see it afterwards, but just picture the scene. I went to one in, in Lebanon, 
and um, Jaito Grotto and one in Barbados called Harrison's Cave. And in these caves, you have these formations that have developed for hundreds of thousands of years. Some 500,000-year-old stalactites and stalagmites exist in these caves, and they grow about 10 centimeters every year, and they look spectacular. But the thing is, I don't go in there thinking, I want to know these rocks. Maybe for some of the geophysicists, you do have that longing. But I don't go in there thinking, I want to know these rocks. Instead, it provokes in me a sense of awe and wonder and worship for the one who made them. The one who laid the very foundations of the earth. And it's interesting that in verse 2, it says he founded it upon the seas. It has echoes of Genesis 1-9 where God says, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Now scientifically we know that the earth doesn't have a water foundation. But rather it was this popular poetic idea in scripture that grew out of this idea of springs whirling up from the ground. But what is important, the important thing in these two verses is that the emphasis is on him, on he. God is the one and no other who laid the foundations of the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He is the one who founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He set the world into motion by his mighty word. David, who wrote this psalm, was a man of great spiritual hunger. And this start of a psalm is a reminder that this hunger wasn't in anything created, but a longing for more of God himself. A.W. Tozer put it this way, He said, the man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. And so when we read the psalm in light of this, when we read the question, who shall ascend, it's not just a general invitation, but in the light of these two verses, it's the response of a heart hungry for God. The hunger is essential as I dwell upon the beauty and the majesty of a God who created all the earth. As I see the awe and wonder of those caves, I think I want to know the one who made it. Such hunger is essential and it stirs up a longing in the depths of our souls. It's a longing that says, how can I ascend the mountain? How can I be in his presence? How can I stand in that holy place? So this morning, church, my first question is, How hungry are you for the presence of God? How hungry are we for the presence of God? That is essential as we think about this word revival. As we think about our pursuit of God, it starts with more of a longing for himself. How hungry are we for him? And so, if verse 3 is the question, verse 4 gives us the condition for revival. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The condition for drawing near to God, to a God of such might and glory, can be summed up in one word. Holiness. God is seeking a people set apart for him. Wholehearted in their devotion and in their love for him. You know, we read, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. In Matthew 5, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And that has been our theme, that's been our longing as we've gathered this whole weekend, this idea of consecration, this idea of being set apart for him. Some of my favorite verses in 2 Timothy 2, 
And Paul encourages Timothy. He says, in a large house, there are articles of gold and silver, of wood and of clay. Some are for common use and some are for special purposes. He says, those who cleanse themselves and from those of common use will be set apart, made holy, useful to the master, prepared for any good work. How? They flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, love, righteousness, um, holiness, peace, <laughs> along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We flee, we pursue, and we do it in community. We serve a holy God. And if anything, the previous verses in this psalm are a reminder of exactly who it is that we are approaching. The one who formed the earth. I recently read this quote, which I think sums it up really well, by this author, Annie Dillard. She said, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out where we can never return. In the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, the pledge of God's presence among his people, which was situated in the Holy of Holies behind a thick curtain in the temple. One time a year, the high priest would enter behind this curtain and he would have a rope attached to his leg in case he died in the presence of God and someone had to pull him out. It's likely that this psalm was composed at the very time of bringing this ark into Jerusalem. I want you to picture for a moment this long procession of white-robed priests bearing this ark of the covenant. They're snaking their way up the hill to the city gates. And there's David at the front. King David dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And behind them follow multitudes as they chant, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? David knew what was at stake. The first time he attempted this, one of the priest's sons made the error of reaching out and touching the ark, and he died on the spot in 2 Samuel 6. So David knew firsthand the might and power of the God he was approaching, the one his soul longed for above anyone else. The condition is holiness, clean hands and pure heart. You know, the journey for me of this has been so interesting. When I first started to contemplate this psalm a year and a half ago, I started to ask, Lord, what does it mean to have clean hands and a pure heart? I looked at the New Testament in the book of James where it says, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And for so much of this last year, I read that psalm, and in many ways, I evaluated myself against it. I was thinking, how clean are my hands? How pure is my heart? And as much as we, we like to think that we can, we can walk in this, I realized time and time again, moments where I would fall pitifully short. Brothers and sisters, let's ask ourselves an honest question this morning. How do we measure up to the condition? Do we have clean hands? Do we have pure hearts? Have we ever lifted up our souls to anything opposed to the nature of God? Have we been deceitful? I know the answer for me is yes. 
And yet the deepest longing of my heart is to ascend the mountain of the Lord. But I can't do that by myself. And so in the presence of a holy God in these verses, we become conscious of our sin. We recognize that there is this barrier. There's an invitation. There's a hunger that comes from the depths of our souls. We want to draw near, but there's a barrier. The realization comes, I can't ascend on my own. And David, it seems, is having this same recognition. And the question remains, can anyone? Can anyone ascend the mountain of the Lord? Throughout the psalm, the question is, who, who, who? Who may ascend? Who may stand in that holy place? And there is an answer. There is one who has been found worthy, and his name is Jesus. David begins to contemplate this in verse 5, where he says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You know, around a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth, it blows my mind that David recognized that this hunger, this yearning in his heart, would require the intervention of God himself. Notice the blessing, the righteousness, they come from God. And God provides the gift. I love how Alexander McLaren, the great Scottish expositor, puts it. He says this, So then, the impossible requirement is made possible as a gift to be received. And although I don't know that the psalmist in the twilight of Revelation saw all that was involved in what he sang, he caught a glimpse of this great thought, that what God required, God would give. That what God required, God would give, and that our way to get the necessary, impossible condition realized in ourselves was to receive it. To receive it. The answer to the deepest longing of every human heart is Jesus, and Jesus only. David's revelation of this gets better and better. Listen to what it means, verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Stella, reflect. Jesus, in ascending the mountain, did not intend to stay there alone. He brings us up the mountain too. A whole generation. Those who will seek the face of the God of Jacob, set apart with clean hands and pure hearts because he has gone before. And we really believe that God is setting apart a generation to worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus goes before us as our great high priest. His righteousness becomes our own. And what is our role in all this? What is required of us? The end of verse 6, the generation of those who seek him. All that is required of us is to seek him. It's faith, as Paul puts it, that we may be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And this is most beautifully portrayed in the account of Jesus' transfiguration, which we read across the gospel accounts. Jesus ascends the mountain and he brings with him Peter, James and John. I wondered why it was just those three. Honestly, I think they were the most hungry. You know, we read they were close to him. And on the mountain, they catch a glimpse of Jesus' glory as he is transfigured before them and it totally marks them. Peter, in his, his second letter, says, We did not come with wise and persuasive stories, but we came as those who have beheld the risen Jesus. We have seen his glory. It took John 
in his gospel, 16 verses, to say, we have beheld his glory. This event marked them. And that same invitation is extended to us today. That same invitation that Peter, James, and John had for those who are hungrily seeking him, for those who walk closely with Jesus, we can go up the mountain and we can catch a fresh vision of who he is that will mark us indelibly for his glory. So to recap, it all begins with a hunger for God himself. It provokes within us a yearning for more of him. And as we behold a holy God, we realize we don't have what it takes to ascend the mountain on our own. God himself made the way in Jesus who brings sons and daughters to glory with him through faith. So briefly, the second half of the psalm, how are we to respond? We pictured earlier in the first half of the psalm that we've got this snaking procession making their ways up to the gate of Jerusalem. And now we can picture them stood outside the ancient barred gates of the city that have been closed. And this exchange takes place between the people outside and the people inside. The people outside say in verse 7, Lift up your head, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The reply, who is this King of glory? Who are we letting in? The people want to know. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And again the cry comes, Lift up your head, O gates. Lift them up, ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Notice that these are ancient doors. We're not looking for for something new. Here in Durham, we've been praying this weekend and thinking about Isaiah 61, which talks about God's people who will raise up the age-old foundations of faith. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're pursuing him for a fresh move but the one we're seeking after hasn't changed. We are praying, and I'm praying this morning, that God will be raising up age-old foundations of faith within his people. And notice that the king of glory on all three occasions is described in terms of his authority and his might. It's the Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle, and the Lord of hosts, which literally means the commander of heaven's armies. And all of this is true. Because it's the primary way that God has revealed himself to David and to Israel through the great victories he brought about on their behalf. And yet we also get the sense David knew there was something more than the ark of God's presence. Could he have ever conceived that one day the king of glory himself would stand before the gates and summon them open? This is the culmination of the Old Testament. Malachi 3.1 says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord who you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And so when Jesus came, he came as the highest embodiment of everything this psalm made him out to be and more. Not only is he strong and mighty, He's come not as the commander, but as the servant king. He's come as both the lion and the lamb. Beyond anything that David could have possibly conceived, there was so much more. Jesus was all this and more. And brothers and sisters, we now know that this same God chooses to make his temple in our hearts. And so this morning, I believe he's knocking. He's knocking at the door of our hearts. 
we've just discovered who, who this King of glory is. I believe the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Spirit is saying, open up you gates, be lifted up you ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. He wants full access. He wants to fill our hearts. So in a moment, we're going to pray. We're going to wait upon the Lord and see where he leads us. I really believe the Lord wants to let the river flow this morning. But before we do that, I want to end with a short account of what happened in the Isle of Lewis during the revival in the Hebrides in 1949. You know, I only found this out last week. And I started to get goosebumps. Listen to what happened. It says for months. In fact, can you guys stand before I read this out? It says this, for months they had waited on God. Nothing happened until one night a young man, Bible in hand, began reading from Psalm 24. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He shut his Bible. Looking at his companions, he said, Brethren, it seems to me so much humbug waiting as we are, unless we are rightly related to God. I must ask myself, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? He then began to pray. At that moment, something happened in the barn. A power was let loose that shook the parish from centre to circumference. God had visited them, and neither they nor the parish could ever be the same again. So church, let's pray. Lord God, the one who searches hearts and minds, we recognise our need for you. Lord, our very, very desperate need for you. Lord, we ask across this room right now, would you stir up a hunger? Lord, we repent of where we've settled for created things over the Creator. Lord, we repent for where we've become satisfied with good things. Good Christian things, Lord, but fallen short of seeking you, Lord. God himself. Would you release the hunger in the room this morning? Lord, a hunger to ascend the mountain. Father, we see there's a barrier, Lord. All of us, all of us have fallen short of your glory. Lord, all of us have sinned. We've turned away from you. And Jesus, we thank you that you've ascended the mountain. Lord, we ask you, lead us up the mountain, clean our hands, purify our hearts, and Holy Spirit, we invite you in, come into your temple, come into our hearts even now, let's wait. You might want to say into your heart, and invite the King of Glory in.